Amen. All right. Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and let's go to Galatians. All right. Galatians chapter 2 is where we'll be. Galatians chapter 2 this morning. And on Sunday mornings, been looking into the life of Peter. And this will be our last lesson we're going to look at as far as into his life. And no, uh, this is not the only last one, of course. There's many we could look into. And we've really only hit the tip of the iceberg as far as looking into the life of Peter. But we've done it this, this, reason, or this way for this reason. Because uh, this evening, we're actually going to dive into uh, 1 Peter. All right, look at that epistle. And so doing it this way, I believe, will help aid in our understanding of the epistles that he wrote. But as we've been in this study together, looking at the life of Peter, we understand that Peter has learned a lot. He's learned a lot about others. He's learned a lot about himself. But most importantly, he's learned a lot about the Lord Jesus Christ. And though he's learned a lot, he's learned much, there's still much to be learned. Still much to be learned about the Lord. And even Peter would echo this very sentiment when he said this in the very last verse of the last book, the last chapter that he wrote, when he penned these words. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter had much to learn. And guess what? You and I do as well. We have much to learn. Much growing still to be had. So as we move forward in the life of Peter and come to another area of growth, we'll be in Galatians chapter 2. And we're going to read verses 11 through 21 in just a moment. But I want to start first with just verse 11. Look at it with me. Galatians chapter 2 and verse number 11. <clears throat> but when Peter was come to Antioch, I, that's Paul, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. Now, Understand as we come to this portion of Scripture, get the context in mind that Paul is giving a testimony of a time when he and Peter were together in this area of Antioch. And I believe this will be significant because the church and the believers at Antioch was a very important group of people in our church history. You see, it would be from Antioch that a revival would have broken out and many people would have come to Christ as Savior. And it would be at Antioch that the people there who are believers would be called Christians first. The Bible says that in Acts chapter 11 and verse 26. And it would be from Antioch that Paul would be sent out to different missionary endeavors and on different missionary journeys. So understand, Antioch was a very central location for the gospel. It was a hub for the gospel. Even Paul himself uh, probably considered this more of his home church, if I can say it that way, because he'd be sent out from Antioch on so many different missionary endeavors, all right? So this is an important area. It's an important church. And now as we look at this text, we understand at one time in history, Peter has come to this town. He has come to this church. He has fellowship and is fellowshipping with these believers. That had been a big deal. It had been a big deal for Peter to be around the Gentile believers, Gentile Christians, and it had been a big deal for these Christians to host the Apostle Peter. But the arrival of Peter here in Antioch would have also um, piqued the interest of others. And the ones, as we went through the book of Galatians, we found out that the interest that was piqued were those of the, well, a group called the Judaizers. And the Judaizers would have come to this area and this region of Galatia and this area to, to spread a 
false gospels. Paul called it another gospel. But it was a false gospel of adding works to the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that is no gospel of all. Listen, the, the works-based salvation is no salvation, all right? Just so you know that. But uh, these people called Judaizers were spreading such a, another gospel and wanted to curb what was going on in the area of Antioch. But the highlight of this passage, or at least what I want to see, is, is this. I want to consider Peter. And I want to consider the lessons he has learned and did learn even while he was in Antioch. And yes, so you just so you know, while he was in Antioch, he was still the mighty apostle Peter that we come to know and read in the Word of God and come to know and love as we look to the Word of God. But we still see, as you come to Galatians 2, Peter, even though he's the mighty apostle, still has much to learn. And so let's see the lessons that Peter learns as he met up at one time with the believers at Antioch, and of course Paul was there as well. All right. The first thing I want to consider in the, that Peter learned from this portion of Scripture as he was in Antioch is this. Number one, Peter, we see this, we see Peter's fear. And maybe this was more of a besetting sin that Peter struggled with from time to time. But look at it with me. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse number 11, and we'll read down through verse 13. The Bible says, But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles, but when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews disassembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. Here we see that Peter had some fear. Now, fear is a very powerful thing, it's a very powerful tool. And Satan tries to use that, by the way. But God has not given us the spirit of fear. But Satan tries to use it. But nonetheless, it's still a very powerful thing. Anybody here afraid of anything? Miss your hand. Okay. Just making sure you're alive. And I said we all have a fear of something. Who here is afraid of spiders? Anybody afraid of spiders? Uh, anybody here, when you walk through a spider web, you all uh, automatically become a master ninja? All right? What was the word? What's that? Right? And uh, look, I, I get it. I've done it many times, walking down the trail, uh, fishing, trout fishing, or whatever. You, come, you walk right into a spider web, and you think that that 10-foot spider is still connected to that web. I get it, you know. Uh, who here are you afraid of uh, uh, mice, rats, anybody? Yeah, I'm not a big fan either. Who here is afraid of snakes? Boom, boom, yeah, me. Uh, the only good one is a dead one. Can I get a witness? Amen. Okay. But uh, I don't like snakes either. But on the count of three, you tell me what you're most afraid of. All right? One, two, three. Okay. We all have a fear of something. All right? Uh, we all have a fear of, of something. But when you face that fear, that very thing you're most afraid of, what do you do? Do you go into fight mode? Or do you go into flight mode? You run away. Or are you going to freeze mode, just paralyzed with fear? Or a combination of all three? Or maybe, maybe you do one or the other, depending on uh, the, the thing you're afraid of or the moment of the day. Listen, we, we can all have different uh, responses to fear, even all of them at the same time. But we all have a response to fear because fear is a very powerful thing. And here's read our text, and we see about Peter here. He is afraid as well. Uh, but the fear that Peter had here was not of spiders or snakes or of lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. Okay, uh, That's not what he's afraid of here. 
Rather, what we see in Galatians chapter 2, his fear was that of fear of man. It was a fear of the brethren. He feared them that were of, the Bible says here, the circumcision, meaning he feared those Jewish individuals that have come from Jerusalem to this area of Antioch. He feared man. Now, the Bible uh, has much to say about this. We know what it says from Proverbs 29, 25, when it says the fear of man bringeth a snare, but whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. And listen, because Peter feared the opinion of these Jewish brethren more than the truth of God, it put him in a snare. It put him in a trap. And listen, the fear of man, it can be a very dangerous thing. Look at verse number 12 with me, if you will. We'll break it down a little bit of this fear that he had. All right, look at verse number 12. The Bible says, For before that certain came from James, meaning this could have been messengers even from Pastor James from Jerusalem, but these messengers would have come from Jerusalem to Antioch, but why would they be there? Why would these fellows come to Antioch? Maybe it was to check on Peter. <clears throat> Maybe these believers came to Antioch to see how things were going in the church. We don't know exactly, but uh, there were some kind of Jewish officials that have come from Jerusalem. But when they came, they found this. Look at it with me. Verse 12 again. He, that's Peter, he did eat with the Gentiles. Now, try to imagine Peter coming to Fletcher, North Carolina. And try to imagine Peter coming to preach at Boiling Springs Baptist Church. Would you be just a little bit excited? It's okay. You can say yes. I'd be excited too. All right? And uh, yes, I would get out of the way let him preach. Okay? Uh, I'd be a little excited about that. I'd be thrilled to know that the Apostle Peter is coming through our doors to teach and preach the Word of God. And no doubt these believers were the same. Knowing that Peter has come. And maybe they had a lot of questions for Peter. Maybe they had questions like, hey, Peter, tell me, what was Jesus really like? Hey, Peter, tell me about that sermon on the mount. Hey, Peter, what was it really like on the Mount of Transfiguration when you saw the very glory of God? Hey, Peter, tell me about the time when you heard Jesus pray and preach. And teach. Tell us those words of life that he gave to you guys. Peter, tell us about the time when you walked on water. Peter, tell us about the time when you saw Jesus raise the dead three different occasions. Tell us about the time when Jesus used you and the other disciples to feed 5,000 men, let alone women and children, with just some crackers and some sardines. Peter, tell us about all these times you saw and were with the Lord. Tell us about the time. When you saw the empty tomb. I can imagine the questions that they all could have had. I would have had the same. I would want to hear from the eyewitness account of Peter himself. What better time to ask these questions and to hear more teaching and preaching from the apostle than over a meal. And so, being a good Baptist, Peter would have, have accepted the meal, amen, and sat down with his newfound friends and fellow believers. But again, keep in mind, as he did so, as he accepted the invitation, keep in mind these Christians in Antioch, they were not Jewish people. They were Gentile people. Uh, meaning, they did not follow the Jewish dietary law. So Peter, as he sat down to eat with these individuals, 
these Gentile believers, he'd be eating with them and eating things like this. Shrimp, crab legs, a big old pot of steamed oysters with melted butter, shrimp sauce, and, sour, and uh, some, some saltine crackers. Mm. Don't get none of that on your forehead. Your tongue will beat your brains out trying to get to it, all right? You say, you like oysters? You better believe it. Good steamed oysters and baptized in butter. and just um, it, Anyway. But imagine eating with shrimp and crab legs. Maybe they had some barbecue and nice big old ham and, of course, bacon. You know what goes good with bacon? Bacon. <laughs> but they had all these things that, well, the Jews wouldn't not necessarily eat, but these Gentiles, well, they did. And Peter, he would have been eating with them whatever they had to, to eat and to feed him. And by the way, there'd be nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with him sitting down and eating with these fellow believers and the food they had prepared. He wasn't sinning against the Lord. He was in staunch rebellion against God's word. Remember, Jesus had already spoken to Peter on this matter in Acts chapter number 10 when Jesus said, What God hath cleansed, that call, call thou not common. Of course, he used the illustration of the uh, different things, the four-footed beasts and other things that would have been restricted in a Jewish dietary law. But, of course, we know what he really meant behind that illustration. He's talking about the Gentiles <coughs> that would come to believe the gospel. And he says, what he has cleansed, call thou not, not common, but still the principle remains the same. These things were clean that he could partake if he wanted to. So Peter knew what he was doing was fine and good and clean, eating with the Gentiles, fellowshipping with them, accepting them as brethren and as family in Christ. It had been a beautiful thing to see and be part of. But notice again in verse number 12. But when they were come, meaning they, meaning the Jewish messengers from James, but when they were come, he, that's Peter, withdrew himself, withdrew and separated himself. Why? Fearing them <clears throat> which were of the circumcision. So I want you to try to picture in your mind in this, uh, in this moment that Peter's sitting around with these new Gentile believers enjoying their new liberty and freedom they have in Christ, enjoying the meal, enjoying the fellowship. And Peter, as he picks up that uh, nice, perfectly made barbecue sandwich to take a big old bite out of that's covered in bacon, in walks the Jewish brethren. And before he takes a bite, he puts it back down. And pushes away from the table and begins to backtrack on his friendliness. Begins to backtrack on his fellowship with these believers. And Peter would have given these individuals, these Galatian believers here, these Antioch believers here, the cold shoulder. <clears throat> it's kind of a sad picture to, to, to visualize, is it not? That Peter would do this. I mean, Peter, what you're doing was, was right. Why would you dare backtrack and withdraw yourself? It's all because he feared the brethren from Jerusalem. And a couple of things I want to notice from his fear here is this. Number one, Peter's fear caused him, number one, to compromise. Now, what is compromise? Well, in a nutshell, this means to make a deal between different parties where each party gives up a part of their stance. Now, as you look at this text and you see here, there's only one person in the party that's giving up their ground in which they are standing, and that is Peter. 
He is giving up the ground of the new liberty he has in Christ, the freedom he has in the Lord. Why? Because he feared these Jews and began to backtrack and compromised upon his truth. And then we see that fear can do this. It can be not only uh, causes compromise, but it can be contagious. Fear can be contagious. Did you know that when something scares you, and you began to scream and run, like even right now, if something scared you, and you jumped up out of your pew and began to scream and run out the back doors, I guarantee you others will follow. Not knowing why they're screaming and running, though, but they will follow you. You know why? It's contagious. It is. Fear can be contagious. Look at verse 13 with me. And the other Jews disassembled likewise with him. Him who? Him being Peter. Insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. So the Jews withdrew and separated, but there was one in particular that was named here in verse 13, and that is Barnabas. Now we know a lot about Barnabas from the Bible. He's one of my favorite characters in Scripture. We know that Barnabas was a, a good man, is what the Bible says. He was a man who's full of the Holy Ghost, a man of faith, Acts chapter 11, verse 24. But the greatest thing he's known for is his encouragement. Barnabas, the encourager. And what is encouragement? It is the action of giving someone support, confidence, or hope. It means to put courage into, thus the word in, courage. And this is what Barnabas would do. He did so with the other apostles. He gave them support and encouragement in Jerusalem. He gave support and encouragement to Paul on his missionary endeavors. He even came to Antioch in, in Acts chapter 11 and verse 22 and gave them support, encouragement, and hope. The Bible says this, Then tidings of these things came to the ears of the church, which was at Jerusalem, <clears throat> and he sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch, who when he came, he had seen the grace of God and was glad and exhorted them all with purpose of heart. They would cleave to the Lord. Understand Barnabas was a great encourager. But look at our text now. It is not seen that he is that encourager we know and love. It doesn't look like he's acting like a man of faith or full of the Holy Ghost. It would seem he's a little bit out of character. Why? Because the mighty apostle Peter, who's full of fear, disassembled likewise. He himself pushed away and separated from these people Likewise, the apostle Peter, one of the pillars of the church, was afraid of the Jews from Jerusalem that caused Barnabas to be afraid of them as well. <clears throat> Understand, fear can be contagious. Thirdly, it can be this. It can be confusing. Fear can cause great confusion. Look at verse 14. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, not as do the Jews... Why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? I can only imagine here the confusion that took place in the hearts and minds of these dear Gentile believers, the ones who took Peter in, the ones who fed Peter, learned of Peter, listened to Peter, hosted Peter, looked up to Peter, and groaned in the Lord because of Peter and his ministry. Now all of a sudden were not good enough to be around. They were too dirty to be around. This fellowship looked bad. Why? Because he feared those from Jerusalem. And his confusion was very hypocritical on his part. And listen, if we have a fear of man <clears throat> more than a fear of God, that will cause us to want to please man 
and we're pleasing God. And when we do that, when we live our life to please others instead of Christ first, that will lead to hypocrisy. And by the way, that's what the word dissimulation means in verse 13. It's the Greek word hypocrites, which means we get our word for hypocrite from. <clears throat> and Peter was playing the part of the hypocrite here. But before you think I'm being too harsh on Peter, I know we're all made of the same dirt, all right? I know we are. We're all capable of the same fear that Peter has here and has portrayed in our, in our text. But we need to be reminded how dangerous it can be to others. Especially to others watching us, little eyes, kids watching us. It can be, but the most dangerous thing it can be is for the gospel here. And that's exactly what Paul was getting at. The whole reason why Paul did what he did here was this, because the truth of the gospel was, was at stake. And Peter was learning that the fear of man could be a very dangerous thing, because if you fear man over fearing God, you'll do things you should not do. You'll compromise the gospel in ways you should never compromise, ever compromise the gospel. So we see, number one, uh, we see Peter's fear. Number two, I want to see this, Paul's fussing, all right? <clears throat> when I say fussing here, I'm not talking about Paul pitching a fit or complaining, but rather, here's what Paul's doing. He's rebuking the apostle Peter. Look at verse number 15. We who are Jews by nature are not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, am dead to the law, but I, that I might live unto God. <clears throat> Understand, Paul in this moment, he's rebuking Peter for his hypocrisy and inconsistently, inconsistency rather, for allowing man to control his actions instead of God and his word. He's rebuking Peter. And Peter is needing to learn in this moment to... Listen, to accept it. He had to learn to accept rebuke. Now, what does it mean to rebuke, though? Well, it means to express sharp disapproval of. It means to reprimand. And no doubt this is what Paul was doing. He is reprimanding. He is expressing sharp disapproval of Peter's actions. Uh, but in this context, it wasn't just to show Peter where he was wrong. Some folks love to rebuke people, you know, to show they're wrong. Ha <laughs> ha, I got you, you're wrong. And they show them where they're wrong. And leave it there. But that's not what Paul was doing. Paul is not just rebuking him, showing him where he's wrong, and then leave him to sulk in his wrongness. But he wanted to point him out where he's wrong so he can help correct the behavior. And this is the true purpose behind a godly rebuke. And that's what Peter's learning. Even as the mighty apostle, he still has much learning What's growing to do is learning to accept rebuke from, yes, the apostle Paul, but a friend. A godly friend who loved Peter, but the best for Peter. He had to learn to accept it. But notice first how Paul rebuked him, all right? First, he did it this way. He did it through inquiry, all right? <clears throat> what do you mean by that? I mean he asked questions. Let me ask you a question this morning, okay? When you were a kid, 
and uh, you got in trouble, did your parents correct you by using questions? Or as a parent now, you use questions to correct your children. You know, after a kid draws on your couch with a Sharpie, and you look at him and you say, what in the world are you doing? What are you thinking? And then the kid tries to cover it up uh, with a lie or an excuse. And then you ask this question, do you think I'm really that stupid? Now, kids and teens that are in the service this morning, let me help you. Never, ever answer that question, especially in the affirmative. Never, all right? And uh, uh, if you go missing for a little while, we'll know why, okay? No, just kidding. But, but never say, yeah. <laughs> no, you don't want to do that. Uh, they're not asking this question for really for information, they're trying to get you to think about what you, what you are doing. You see, questions such as these, they stir the conscience about what we did wrong and how we should correct it and next time don't do it kind of thing. I like what one person said about questions. They said, questions stir the conscience, but accusations harden the will. So questions are good. They are important. And what Paul is doing is trying to get Peter, as well as Barnabas and the other Jews that are there, to think. <clears throat> Excuse me. To think, to stimulate, to stir up their thinking, stir up their thinking about what's right and wrong, stir up their thinking about what they have been taught, their traditions versus the truth that they know that has set them free. They try to get them to think. And how do you do it? Through questions. That's how he started, he began to rebuke. How else did he do it? All right, number two, he did it doctrinally. Paul rebuked and corrected Peter by pointing to the truth of the Word of God. Look at verse 16. Knowing that a man, he's talking to Peter, all right? He's rebuking him, talking to him. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, and not by the works of a law. For by the works of a law shall no flesh be justified. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. Now, there's a word here that Paul uses four different times in two verses. And it's this word. It's the word justified. But what does it mean to be justified? Well, this word means this. Justified means a person or persons believed to be worthy or redeemed. Now, how does a person believe to be worthy? How does a person become to be Redeemed. And there's really only two thoughts. When you boil it all down, there's really only two thoughts on this. And the first thought on being redeemed is this way. Number one, by works. And again, in the context of Galatians, those that were of the circumcision would have taught that you become uh, worthy or become redeemed through a process of works. A process of adding rituals and rules to the Lord Jesus Christ, a process of keeping in line with, even in, in immediate context, of the dietary restrictions, which was the contentious point right here, all right? But keeping the, the covenant uh, ritual of circumcision, keeping the covenant of the Old Testament, keeping the laws, keeping the Sabbath, all of these things. They would say, you do this through a process, and you'll be counted as worthy and redeemed. So basically, when you boil it all down, here's what they were doing. They were saying you'll be worthy on a works-based salvation. I understand there's people today who still teach 
that way and that process today. And guess what? They'll be wrong. Because listen, salvation is not gained through any amount of works. You're not saved through a process. It's not. My question to those that say that you are saved by works, my question to them is this. Well, how much work is enough? And if somebody has more work than me, are they more justified than me? Those questions can't be answered either. How much is enough? Listen, there's no accurate answer for those. So a works-based justification, understand, is no justification at all. So <clears throat> justification is not based on what we can do, but rather is based on what Jesus has done through his death, burial, and resurrection. Amen. All right? That's what it's based upon. It's based upon the Lord. And because of what Jesus has done and not what we can do, justification is this way. Look at verse 16. Knowing. Paul's saying, look, here's how we know. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. I remind you of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Salvation is in Christ and Him alone. It's accepted by faith. It's given by grace. So if you're saved, it's because you came to Christ and believed on Him as your Savior. And be reminded, Peter knew this. And that's why I believe Paul is kind of coming down upon him. He knew this. He even said in verse 16, we have believed in Jesus Christ. We might be justified by the faith of Christ. He knew. He knew where salvation was truly found. So doctrinally and simply, justification is this. It is the act of God whereby he declares the believing sinner righteous in Jesus Christ. So, Peter's learning to accept rebuke. And Paul's rebuking him through inquiry. And then he's rebuking him through, or by doctrinally. And then he did it this way quickly, publicly. Now, in verse 14, he says that he, before them all, rebuked him. But this isn't always how we rebuke someone. Actually, it's very, 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 very rare to do so. But since Peter was doing what he was doing in public, Paul had to do so publicly. Besides, there's a lot more at stake here than the feelings of Peter gospel was at stake. The church of Antioch was at stake. These Gentile believers that Paul had won to the Lord and loved so dearly, they were at stake. And he had to respond appropriately. So we see Peter, he feared. I think it might have been a besetting sin of his, but he learned that fear is not of God. The fear of man is very dangerous. And then he learned to accept rebuke. And lastly, I want to see this quickly. I want to see his focus. Or really refocus, if you will. What was it that was going to help Peter, and even Paul for that matter, to stay the course? What was going to help Peter contend for the faith, to defend and declare the gospel? What was going to help Peter to, to be that individual, to strengthen the brethren? What was it that was going to help him overcome his fear of the brethren? What was it that was going to help him? Here it is. Look at verse number 20. I am crucified with Christ. 
Nevertheless, I live, not, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness came by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Listen, it was this that was going to help him, his focus, that is. As he focused upon the Lord Jesus Christ, that was going to keep him from focusing in on man and the fear of man to focus in even on the media contest again of these Judaizers that would intimidate him, these Jews coming from Jerusalem to intimidate Peter as long as he kept his focus upon Christ. He could overcome those things as they focused upon the Lord. Understand something. Problems will come. Difficulties do arise. Disappointments do happen. And people will let you down. Even folks you may look up to, they may fail you. It may not be on purpose, it's not intentional, but it does happen. After all, we're talking about Peter here. <laughs> this dude, would you agree with me? This is a little bit disappointing, yes? Uh, of him, of him dis- uh, separating, disassembling with these b- fellow believers. That's a little disappointing. We're talking about Peter. And even Barnabas himself being pushing away. It would been frustrating, to say the least, to see these men behave this way. And in this moment, understand Paul could have done the same thing. He could have went the way with Peter and the other Jews and Barnabas, but he didn't. Why? His focus was different. He's trying to help Peter refocus as well to focus upon the Lord. Keep your eyes upon Jesus. Dear Christian, I can't say it enough. Keep your eyes your focus upon, upon the Lord. I've seen so many get their eyes off of Christ. I heard what one preacher, I can't remember who said it now, but uh, um, it, might have been, it might have been Brother Chase Whitten who preached, I don't know, a couple months ago. And he said, uh, it might have been him, somebody who pre- filled in and preached for us one, one day. He said, the quickest way to go blind in a Christian life is to get your eyes off of Jesus. It's so true. And I think even this moment, maybe Peter did that. Got his eyes off of the Lord. I've seen so many do that, even in my short young life and, 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 and young ministry life. I've seen so many get their eyes off of Jesus. And I've heard those same people get frustrated and mad and say, I'm not going back to church. I say, well, why? Why? Just a bunch of hypocrites go there anyway. Oh, okay. I'm not going back to church. Well, why? That so-and-so hurt my feelings. Oh. So what you're telling me is you got your eyes off of Jesus and all these other people. That's what you're telling me? Well, uh, <laughs> it happens. I get it. People let you down. People may hurt your feelings. It may not be intentional, though. Please give them the benefit of the doubt. But don't get your eyes off of Jesus. Because the action of somebody else. That's what Paul is trying to get at here with Peter. Peter, get your eyes back on Jesus. Focus upon the Lord. And don't let somebody else's hypocrisy stop you. Don't let somebody else's failure stop you. Keep your focus upon the Lord. Our eyes should be on Jesus, not on the problem. Our eyes should be on the Lord. Our focus should be upon Him, not on people. 
especially ones that may mistreat and do harm. Rather focus upon the Lord. Let me read a verse to you. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 through 3, I want this to encourage you today to keep your focus upon the Lord. The Bible says, after the writer of Hebrews talks about the we call the Hall of Faith chapter and chapter 11, as you see these individuals who by faith did all these wonderful things for the Lord, he writes this, Wherefore seeing, we are all also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Those witnesses, I believe, he's referring back to chapter 11. He says this, Let us lay aside every weight, and the sin which does so easily beset us. Again, I think fear might have been a besetting sin of, of Peter. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. How do we do that? How do we run the race that's set before us? How do we not get sidetracked? How do we not get beset with these sins and these weights of the world? How do we run our race? Here it is. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. He's letting them know in a nutshell that, listen, Jesus faced all these things in his, in his humanity as well, but he finished his race. He ran his course. And he says this, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your mind. Keep your focus, your eyes, <coughs> Upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this moment, I believe Paul is trying to get that across to Peter. Look, Peter, you got your eyes, man. You, you, your focus is off. It's off, it's off on, the, on the wrong things. Don't focus on those folks that came from Jerusalem. No, no, no. Keep it upon the Lord. You know what the Lord has taught you and showed you? Focus upon Him. Keep your eyes upon Jesus. I can't say it enough. To focus maybe refocus even this morning upon the Lord. I promise you, you'll be glad you did. It'll keep you from falling in these snares and traps that even Peter, the Apostle Peter, found himself in once in a while. Get your eyes back upon Jesus. Understand, Peter, man, he has learned so much. Now, we've only hit the tip of the iceberg when it comes to studying his life. But in this moment, in Galatians chapter 2, he had to learn that, man, he still had some fear. He, he had to learn to overcome that. He had to learn to accept some rebuke from a friend, a godly man like Paul. And he had to learn to focus, maybe refocus would be a better word, back upon the Lord and follow him. Maybe you're here this morning and you do the same. Your, your mind and your focus is on dozen different directions other than the Lord Jesus. Today, refocus. Get your mind's eye back on Christ. Get back in the Word of God. Get back in prayer. Refocus back to the Lord today. Maybe you need to do that. In the quietness of the moment when we sing here in, in, in shortly in, the, in our altar call, as we call it, maybe you need to do that. Just refocus. Back upon Jesus.